and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 8.5, The Power of the Dollar. History. I'm your host, Dana, and since a whopping three to five people have asked me to make a special episode on this, I've decided to oblige them and rant my thoughts here instead of on social media. Now, I don't want to talk about the war in Russia and Ukraine in general because I'm not objective and I can't say war is not the answer. I'm a fighter, not a lover, and everyone has chosen their side anyway. So instead, I've I decided to discuss the history of global finance, trade blocks, and war and theorize a little bit about what this particular war, the accompanying sanctions, and Russia's response to those sanctions may mean for the global financial system in the future, and what is being referred to as the Great Reset. So without further ado, let's get started. Chapter 1, a very quick primer on macroeconomics, monetary theory, and trade blocks. Like Hilary Duff, let's go back to the beginning. Macroeconomics, which is the branch of, uh, branch of economics that deals with the performance, structure, behavior, and de decision-making of an economy as a whole, has several theories and laws within it concerning monetary economics. Monetary economics is the branch of mainly macroeconomics that studies the different competing theories of money, namely how money is valued, what its functions are, like as a medium of exchange, a store of value, or as a unit of accounting, and monetary economics also considers and theorizes how money gains acceptance and legitimacy because of its utility as a public good. To give you an example, let's monetize the world of bees. In the bee world, there are several items that one could say have the most value. Flowers, and more specifically, their nectar and pollen, and then the honey that is produced from that nectar. Also important is beeswax, which bees produce themselves, albeit not all the bees are capable of this. So if you were to monetize the world of bees, nectar, pollen, and the flowers that produce them would be monetary units because of how useful and necessary they are for making honey. Bees rely on honey and pollen for energy, so honey, nectar, and pollen would be considered commodities. Now, bees in a monetized world might decide that since there's so many kinds of flowers, each unique in their own way, um, but they use them all for the same thing so that it would make sense to streamline the trade of pollen, nectar, and honey by using flower petals as a currency unit to represent X amount of nectar or honey or pollen. And you can drill down from there, assigning certain flowers, certain values, or certain nectars or honey. But I have to move on because I am very susceptible to rabbit holes in these kinds of things. In our monetized world, we have commodified things like crude oil, water, and raw foodstuffs like wheat, meaning that we have assigned value to these items because of their functions. And that is how 99.9% .9 of wars start. Chapter two, industrialization and monetary zones. 
Now, I'm sure we've all seen the infographics that float around social media and have all the countries of Africa and some of the natural resources that can be found in those countries. It's usually accompanied by a caption that says, Africa isn't poor, she's exploited, which is true without a doubt. But these kinds of infographics don't tell the entire story, I don't think. Despite her abundance of natural resources, Africa is indeed poor. And the primary reason is that because... It's because most African countries are either blocked or hobbled in the process of not only extracting those resources, but also selling them as commodities. This is because of the way that industrialization has occurred in Africa and throughout the world and because of monetary zones. The age of industrialization is a period of world history where hand tools and small scale crafting of finished goods was replaced by power driven machines and large scale manufacturing of finished goods. It's also the time period when raw materials from other parts of the world began to circulate for manufacturing into finished goods. And this process could have gone in many directions at once, but generally went in one direction from the colony to the colonizer. The Industrial Revolution is thus generally considered to have begun in the 1760s in England and rapidly spread around the British Empire as it grew. In fact, the rapaciousness of the British Empire in the 18th and 19th centuries was fueled by the desire to both find raw materials to make into finished goods and then to create new markets in these colonized places where British pound sterling was the sole currency used to buy and sell both raw materials and British manufactured finished goods. During the 18th and 19th centuries, the British Empire created an informal sterling zone. They didn't start calling it a sterling zone until the 20th century, but they had started it in the 18th and 19th century. And the sterling zone, Commonwealth, Empire, blah, 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 were the colonies, dependencies, commonwealths, protectorates, etc., that were forced to cultivate and sell their resources to British buyers, and then were forced to buy and internally sell British manufactured finished goods within their own countries. This was called mercantilism and British mercantilism was designed to maximize the number of exports of British finished goods and minimize the number of imported finished goods from areas outside of Great Britain. And by Great Britain, I mean like the kingdom of Great Britain, not the protectorates and colonies and all that stuff. It was a tiered system. In order to achieve this maximization and therefore ensure that British people only ever spent British currency for British manufactured goods, the British Empire had to colonize as much of the world as they could and hold it through wars of imperialism, of which they fought many, including the Crimean War, the 1857 Anglo-Indian War, the Boer Wars, the Anglo-Sudanese Wars, the Napoleonic Wars, etc., etc. Mercantilism needs to reduce competition as well. And the British did this through war and other means, like subsidies to British firms so that their startup and operational costs were lower than their competitors, tariffs on imported goods to keep the cost of British goods competitive, and through policies inflicted on the colonies that made it so that buying British goods was cheaper and more cost-effective than buying anyone else's, or they just made it flat out illegal. So for example, in British-controlled India, to make sure that both British people living in the UK or living in the British Raj and also the Indians living in the British controlled Raj would only buy lace collars that were made in the UK, 
only a certain amount of sewing machines were allowed to be imported into India. And then the patents on new sewing technology were kept out of the British Raj and only in the UK so that Indian tailors and seamstresses couldn't keep up with the latest styles and techniques. Also, the cost of silk, which was usually grown in India and China, was either prohibitive or completely prescribed for anyone who lacked the appropriate licenses to buy silk and other fibers in bulk. And of course, when they did, they had to buy it in sterling. Great Britain was not the only great power in the 18th and 19th centuries that operated this way. The French had their metropole, the Belgians and the Dutch utilized both the metropole and the British imperial sterling area and became very wealthy nations because they were master currency exchangers. And the Germans, Spaniards, Italians and Portuguese also clamored for their own zones of economic influence at the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885 as well. The Spaniards actually did it first. They had the custom, well, not the Spaniards, the kingdom of Castile, because it wasn't Spain yet. They had it first and they had a very, very tight mercantilist system where if a British controlled Guyana couldn't trade with Spanish controlled Venezuela, even though they were right next to each other because the Spaniards had their custom houses set up where the Spaniards only allowed people within their imperial sphere to trade, not even really with each other. Everything had to go back to Spain and then it could flow back into the colonial possessions. So two Spanish control areas in South America would be right next to each other and they wouldn't be allowed to like directly trade with one another because Spain was just so paranoid that the money wouldn't flow back into the Madrid Central Bank. I have an episode about that on my podcast in my Lives of Three General series, if you would like to know more about that. So at the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885, each country was kind of trying to gain a foothold in a world specifically in an Africa that had pretty much already been gobbled up by either France or Great Britain. These countries also warred with one another over not only the resources found in Asia, Africa, Oceania, Central and South America, and the Middle East, but over the cheaper labor and abundant land and trade zones that could be established there. This led to a rise in great power conflicts with Great Britain usually joining or creating a coalition to defeat either the French or the Prussians who later became the unified German empire in order to maintain control over the most favored shipping lanes, those being the Straits of Gibraltar, the Cape of Good Hope, the Suez Canal, the Bosphorus Straits and the Straits of Malaya, arable land being the most arable land in the world being in like Kenya, Upper Malaya, Southern China, the Indus River Valley, and pre-damn Egypt, and cheap labor, labor, which was basically anybody that was born in the Commonwealth who was either going to be a wage slave on a rural plantation or an urban factory, or a member of the petite bourgeois who was willing to leave their country to be educated in the UK and contribute to the UK tax base, building wealth there instead of back home, which is called brain drain. They also warred with the Portuguese and the Dutch over control over Southern Africa and were effective at neutralizing the Dutch by defeating the Boers and subjugating them to British rule and British mercantilism. 
and by creating a large physical gap between Portuguese Angola and Portuguese Mozambique, which had the effect of hampering trade by disrupting trade routes. Now, when the Portuguese companies wanted to ship something from one part of their territory to the other, they had to go by boat through French-controlled waters in East Africa or South, through British-controlled land and sea routes through the Cape of Good Hope, and in either case, they had to pay heavy fees or have their cargo seized. These monetary zones were a chief cause of the Napoleonic Wars, both in Europe and in the Americas, as Napoleon wanted his multinational continental system to compete with Great Britain's uh, sterling area. The French and Indian War in the U.S., where George Washington first won a claim, was an example of this. And my own country, Trinidad and Tobago, became a British colony after centuries of Spanish administration and French settlement when the British won round one of the Napoleonic Wars and the Spanish who had sided with their Catholic cousins in round one, signed the second treaty of San Ildefonso in 1802. The fledgling United States was still staunchly anti-British at this time, but with Canada to the north of them and the largely British-controlled Caribbean controlling the southern shipping lanes, they ultimately had to accept a sort of second-class status or be uh, because they were surrounded by the Sterling area even if they were able to resist being reabsorbed by the British directly via the War of 1812. Competing monetary zones and the wars they caused continued into the 20th century, culminating in the extremely gruesome trench war of attrition that was the First World War. The German Empire, constituted in 1870, was in its rapid expansion phase of empire, and the Germans had been rapidly industrializing and militarizing since the unification into the Hohenzollern-led Second Reich. By 1890, German-made products were in competition with British manufacturers, not just in Europe, but globally, and German merchant ships, which were faster and carried more cargo than British merchant ships, and also had fewer constraints on who and what they could carry cargo for and where they could operate, were threatening Britain's maritime trade as well. So I said something about expansion phase of empire. That's something I just, I think, made up. In my own highly unscientific way, I have, for the purposes of this podcast, divided the life cycle of an empire into three main phases. There's a consolidation phase, which is where the lands that will constitute the base of the empire are consolidated into one main entity. For the Turks, for example, this was Anatolia. For the Americans, it was the formerly indigenous lands that now make up the continental United States. For the Jap- Japanese, it was the consolidation of the lands of the major daimyos under the rule of one shogun and the emperor during the Edo period, and then later just the emperor in the Meiji Restoration. For the Germans, their consolidation phase consisted of all the German-speaking lands that made up the Holy Roman Empire or at least as many of them as they could snag since Italy had also consolidated into the Kingdom of Italy in 1861, and they had already incorporated some of the former Holy Roman Empire as well. The next phase of expansion, um, sorry, of empire is the expansion phase. And this is the phase that brings a burgeoning empire into conflict with other empires and their neighbors and with foreign countries as well. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870 was the last major conflict of the German Empire's consolidation phase. And as a prize for winning the war, the German Empire received the coal-rich regions of Alsace and Lorraine from France. Side note, I do not care if I'm pronouncing Alsace wrong. I'm pretty sure that I am. But French is not important, so we don't care. After the Franco-Prussian War... 
France had to import coal from other countries, including the German Empire, which must have been so typical and humiliating for them. The next phase, this expansion phase, where the burgeoning empire comes into conflict with everybody, is what led to these territorial struggles between great powers. And I'm using the term great powers very loosely here because I guess for whatever reason, France has to be included in this. And it wasn't just limited to Europe either. Like the British, the French and Germans like to outsource their games of thrones to Africa and Asia, sometimes joining forces like in the Eight Nation Alliance that imposed a shameful um, indemnity on Qing Dynasty China in 1900 after crushing popular revolt there, and at other times fighting amongst each other for land that didn't belong to either of them, such as France and Germany fighting each other and making the Atlas Lion go extinct in the first Moroccan crisis of 1905-1906, when Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany convinced Sultan Abdulaziz to make a move for complete independence so that France wouldn't gain economically from the growing Moroccan-German trade that flowed through the German Gold Coast, which is present-day Ghana, and Cameroon into Moroccan ports and vice versa. This conflict and the Agadir crisis of 1911, which has the cooler sounding name of Panthersprung in German, were all part of smaller great power conflicts that led to the First World War. And they were all about trade and resources and who would control trade routes. The Balkans was another right field for great power jockeying. Germany and her little sister Austria competed with the Russian empire who was in her self-destructive phase of empire, the last phase, for commercial privileges. As early as 1888, Germany began to build railways that cut through the Balkans, and Austria regarded the Balkans as a field for profitable investment and a big market for Austrian manufactured goods. Austria was also in her self-destructive phase of empire, or Austria-Hungary, rather. But Russia also hoped to control the Balkans because half of their exports, which weren't many, uh, Russia didn't really industrialize until after the imperial phase and they became the Soviet Union. But whatever trade they did have going on, whatever manufactured goods they did want to export, even though they were definitely importing more than they were exporting, uh, they wanted to be able to do it freely throughout the Balkans. And also, and probably more so, the Russians as a Slavic Orthodox people uh, felt that the Slavic Orthodox Balkans should, well, not the whole Balkans. I mean, there's there's Muslims, there's Jews, there's Protestants, um, and there's Catholics as well. But certain kingdoms like Serbia, literally, for example, were Orthodox and Slavic, whereas the Austro-Hungarian Empire was controlled by Catholic non-Slavs. And we all know what happened in the Balkans that led to World War I. So after World War I, not having learned a thing from the economic competition that caused it, the great powers of Europe and the United States, who was by this time stepping into her expansionist phase of empire after winning some territories in Asia and Latin America from the Spanish and was also imposing a brutal occupation on Haiti at the time, they all gathered at the Palace of Versailles on 28 June 1919 to end World War I and impose severe terms on Germany that pretty much guaranteed that Germany would either be too impoverished to ever pose an economic threat to British and French imperial interests or 
that Germans would become embittered by the terms of the treaty and a populist leader with fascist tendencies would use that economic misery to spin a tale of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and a resurgence myth that would lead to world war. And which one do you think happened? As part of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was forced to bear financial responsibility for the war all by themselves, despite the fact that Italy, Austria, Hungary, Turkey, and Serbia all still existed as recognized successors to the governments that had also aligned with Germany to start the damn war. These terms were both unrealistic and they caused economic harms to the nations that imposed them as much as it did to Germany, namely to France, who suffered the most in World War I and then suffered the most from the terms that they agreed to impose after World War I. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we're kind of doing the same thing right now with the sanctions on Russia. Anyway, Germany had been forced to pay France a substantial indemnity and the German economy, which was already kind of in free fall after the abdication of the Kaiser, the dissolution of the empire and the establishment of the Weimar Republic, could not handle paying such a huge indemnity when several of the former empire's largest economic centers, such as the coal-producing region of Silesia, have been given away to newly reestablished nations such as Poland and Lithuania. Not saying I'm mad at it, I'm just saying, how do you take away a country's ability to repay and then expect them to not only repay, but to prioritize repayment? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what's wrong with the economic liberalization concessions in the IMF. But I will get to that later. So with Germany unable to repay France, France was then unable to repay repay Great Britain, who had lent France large sums of money to support the war effort. And in turn, Great Britain was unable to repay the United States who they had borrowed large sums of money from to lend to France and other allies, such as Belgium. These interwar banking policies, called beggar-thy-neighbor policies, resulted in many of the assets listed on banks' balance sheets being unrecoverable loans. And this led to the 1930-1931 German banking crisis that saw the collapse of many of Germany's largest banks. Now, Beggar-thy-neighbor policies. Do those sound familiar? If they don't, they should, because the United States is printing money faster than they can chop down the paper or make the pulp. I don't know how how paper money is made, or if it is even paper money, or if they just put some X's and O's and some type of, I don't know exactly how the Fed does it. But trillions and trillions of dollars are just appearing out of thin air for the express purposes of helping NATO countries build their forces up so that they can then give that to Ukraine so you can't Ukraine can still lose the war. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, the allies had also failed to coordinate exchange rates in the interwar period, which also exacerbated political tensions. American lenders frustrated by the inability to recoup their losses abroad, lobbied for isolationist fiscal policies such as the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of 1930, which raised tariffs on over 20,000 imported goods. Maybe not a good idea to reinstate tariffs when you're also printing money like crazy to pay for a proxy war. Maybe. 
But, you know, the people that lead don't read. Moving right along, other nations responded by also raising tariffs on imported goods, such as when Great Britain formally implemented their sterling area, which again was a trade block of nations within the British Empire, which is now called the Commonwealth of Nations. The British had long ago run out of the money to support their global empire. And by the 1930s, the British were importing more than they exported. And the Commonwealth nations had to bear the cost of this while British central banks manipulated their balance sheets to artificially buoy the pound sterling. Members of the Commonwealth nations were required to trade with pound sterling and keep their operating reserves in British central banks in pound sterling. Now, the health of a bank is dependent on how many people keep their money in it. By requiring a sizable chunk of the world to not only maintain their operating funds in pound sterling, but also keep this money in the British Central Bank, this made the bank and Great Britain richer and kept the Commonwealth poorer and also economically dependent on Great Britain. Now, Alexander Hamilton may have been a slave-owning Opteroon asshole, but he understood central banking, and he was dead on the money when he told the Jeffersonian faction that a nation without its own central bank was basically asking to be colonized. Anyway, this policy was a manipulation of Britain's trade deficit that gave the UK central bank a financial account surplus and balance payments. This was like a huge plot line in the Crown season three or four, and like nobody paid attention to it. Nobody paid attention to the fact that the British crown and the British government were essentially fudging the fucking numbers throughout the entire 1950s, trying to pretend that they still had money when they hadn't had money in fucking decades. And everybody's just like, I can't believe Prince Charles said that. Like, The British royals are fucking lying to the country. You know that, right? Anyway, this policy was a manipulation and a lie. So prior to the implementation of this policy, imports from the United States to countries within the Commonwealth were threatening both parts of the British domestic market for manufactured goods. And it was making it so that Great Britain could not devalue its currency competitively so that Commonwealth nations would choose the pound sterling over the U.S. dollar, which was threaten the balance of payment system in the British banking system. So these restrictive trade blocks and tariffs re- resulted in less international trade overall, just like it's going to do now, leading to high rates of unemployment due to a smaller market for consumer goods and the devaluation of the goods already on the market due to overproduction in certain industries. Now, the second part of that isn't going to happen because... These corporations have us by the balls and they're going to price gouge, essentially, which is what's happening with oil. The price of the barrel hasn't been as cheap, has been cheap in days. The oil futures market is in shambles and you are still paying six, seven dollars for gas. Why? Because I guess fucking ExxonMobil said we can. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? All of this constricted the domestic economies and exacerbated the effects of the Great Depression. Populist demagogues such as Francisco Franco in Spain, Benito Mussolini in Italy, and Adolf Hitler in Germany 
use the dire economic circumstances in their countries to seize control of their respective governments and implement hyper-nationalist and autarkic monetary systems that were antagonistic towards other nations, creating the conditions for the Second World War when Adolf Hitler began annexing resource-rich regions that he argued had been unfairly stripped from Germany in the Treaty of Versailles. These illegal annexations, most notably the 1939 joint invasion of Poland by Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, then led to the Second World War. Chapter 3. The Bretton Woods System From 1 to 22 July 1944, the United States, Great Britain, and the other Allied powers, including the USSR, lest we forget, who provided the Ost Front for the Germans to lose in in both world wars, they all got together in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and created an international monetary exchange system called the Bretton Woods Agreement. This agreement also created the International Monetary Fund, IMF, and the World Bank. The Allies, urged on by men like John Maynard Keyes from the UK and Harry Dexter White from the US, Treasury Department, sought to avoid another post-war Great Depression that saw that many saw as the launching point for the many right-wing fascist demagogues like Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. These liberal democracies and the Soviet Union constructed the Bretton Woods system and the IMF They believed in the idea that countries who have regular and robust trade with one another are less likely to go to war with one another, which is called democratic peace theory. Um, A certain democratic administration has clearly never heard of democratic peace theory. All they know is sanctions. The Americans at the end of World War II were in the best position. Well, it wasn't completely over yet, but... They were in the best position to benefit from the Bretton Woods system and somehow did it. And the British needed the Bretton Woods system the most since the UK now owed the US for two world wars and both countries wanted to control the flows of speculative capital and prevent competitive currency devaluation while not forcing debtor nations like the UK to contract their industrial bases to make payments and maintaining high levels of foreign foreign direct investment desperately needed by the British, by keeping interest rates attractive. This last point was particularly important, like I said, for Great Britain, as the imbalance in payments was only soon to grow larger between the U.S. and the U.K. Now, John Maynard Keynes, representing British interests, proposed that surplus nations or countries that have more exports than imports of goods and services, that being the United States at this point, either be forced to import from debtor nations build factories in debtor nations, or donate to debtor nations. The U.S., led by uh, Harry Dexter White, said, uh-uh, bitch, how you gonna beg and set terms? I gotta shift my domestic economy from a wartime to a peacetime economy, and you know everybody gonna be having babies after this war. So my folk gonna need factory jobs to support all these families that are about to be starting. The municipalities they live in are gonna need the tax revenue from the factories and from the people that work there. And my president needs to be able to say he grew the economy via his economic policies. So how does putting American factories in the UK help us do any of that? Somebody's administration needs a Harry Dexter White in their cabinet. Instead, White argued in favor of funding the IMF with enough resources to counteract destabilizing flows of speculative finance. Mr. White's proposal had the IMF counteracting dangerous speculative flows automatically with no vote and no conditions, unlike the current IMF system of checks, balances, and 
most importantly, those evil, evil trade concessions. They also agreed that there needed to be regulation of the international monetary system with each nation doing its part to manage the economy as part of their public policy. To prevent isolationist nationalist policies and ensure economic stability, the delegations agreed to cooperate closely to regulate the production of their currencies, to maintain fixed exchange rates, and to facilitate easier international trade. The U.S. envisioned a post-war economic system completely free of tariffs and balances of trade maintained through fixed exchange rates pegged to the U.S. dollar. The more developed market economies agree with the U.S. vision of post-war international economic management, and they view the new international monetary system as a return to a system like the pre-war gold standard, only using U.S. dollars as the world's new reserve currency until international trade reallocated the world's gold supply of which the United States had the bulk of it. So the U.S. had the world's, the bulk of the world's gold supply after World War II, which it wasn't doing much for the United uh, for international trade, but it was a nice little nest egg for the United States. Keynes, again, representing British interests, proposed a world reserve currency, which he tentatively called the Bancor. You know who died for doing something like that? Gaddafi. The Bancor would be administered through the World Bank and that the World Bank would have the power to create money. Both Keynes and Harry Dexter White understood that the Bretton Woods economic system required an accepted vehicle for investment, trade, and payments. But Keynes wanted to ensure that the reserve currency was independent of a particular country's currency valuation, lest it lead to another currency overtaking the pound sterling and lowering its value. And the UK could neither afford to lose its trading advantages under the sterling area, which it had to give up anyway, nor for the pound sterling to become devalued in a global and convertible market. Ultimately, the Bretton Woods system ended up utilizing the U.S. dollar as a peg currency around which other currencies were fixed. Members of the Bretton Woods system were thus compelled to keep reserves of U.S. dollars on hand, which were at the time backed by the gold standard in order to easily convert currencies in international trade or to, to make payments to the IMF or to contribute to the managed fund. The U.S. dollar had a high degree of convertibility, meaning it was easily converted into gold. It was directly convertible into gold, actually. Under the Bretton Woods system, banks of issue throughout the world were obliged to redeem their currencies in gold bullion or in U.S. dollars, which were in turn redeemable in gold bullion at an official rate of $35 per troy ounce. The terms of the Bretton Woods Agreement largely reflected U.S. preferences as there was a tiered system of subscriptions and quotas embedded in the IMF, which would not be a central bank with the power to create money, but instead was relegated to being kind of like an, an EFT, a managed pool of national currencies that subscribe their currency to the gold standard that the U.S. dollar was backed by. The IMF was charged with managing member nations' trade deficits so that they had limited ability to devalue their currencies, leading to a decline in imports that largely came from the U.S. Through these measures, the U.S. positioned itself as the world's major exporter and removed most of the interwar trade barriers to open up new markets, Europe mostly, and all of those areas that Europeans controlled, for U.S. goods, ushering what most economists refer to as a golden age of capitalism, at least for the global north. 
So the IMF is managed through contributions from member countries who contribute in gold and in their own currencies. When a country joins the IMF, they're assigned a quota that reflects their relative economic power, and they pay a subscription equal to the quota, which is paid as 25% in gold or currency converted into gold, which was most often the U.S. dollar, which at the founding of the IMF was the only currency that was still directly gold convertible, and the remaining 75% in their own currency. Quota subscriptions make up the largest source of funding for the IMF, which the fund then uses to grant loans to member countries. Each member country is also allowed to withdraw 25% of its quota in case they're unable to make their loan payments. But this has the effect of lowering the country's standing within the IMF as well as the country's credit rating with international banks. In the instance that withdrawing 25% of the quota isn't enough, member nations are also able to request loans for foreign currency, which was usually the U.S. dollar and had to be repaid in the currency requested, which was also the U.S. dollar. The size of these requests for foreign currency are determined by the size of the country's quota, which essentially means that the higher a country's contribution rate was, the higher the amount it was able to borrow. Members were required to pay back debts within a period of 18 months to five years, and the IMF embarked on setting up rules and procedures to keep a country from going too deeply into debt year after year, exercising surveillance over other economies on behalf of the U.S. Treasury in return for its loans to prop up national currencies. In this way, IMF loans were not comparable to loans issued by a conventional uh, credit institution. Instead, they were effectively given a chance to purchase a foreign currency, usually U.S. dollars, with gold or the member's national currency in order to continue engaging in international trade. Pegged means that everything is is centered around the U.S. dollar. The gold, the status, the quotas, the amount you're able to borrow, all of this is highly dependent on how much U.S. dollars that can be converted into gold bullion that you can acquire. The IMF was designed to advance credits to countries with balance of payments deficits. The concept was that short-run balance of payment difficulties would be overcome by IMF loans, which would then stabilize currency exchange rates amongst member nations. This meant that member states would no longer have to drastically reduce their level of importation to cut expenditures, and countries would not need to devalue their currencies when faced with chronic balance of payments deficits, which had been the standard operating procedure in most of Europe prior to the Second World War. So what happened to the Bretton Woods system? Short answer, France. In 1945, the year that the Bretton Woods Agreement was ratified and the IMF was established, the U.S. held $26 billion out of an estimated $40 billion in global gold reserves which was approximately 65% of the world's gold bullion supply at the time. The American economist Ben Bernanke, who served two terms as the chair of the Federal Reserve, wrote that the proximate cause of the world depression was a structurally flawed and poorly managed international gold standard. The U.S. had large trade surpluses post-war, but the global financial system as a whole suffered from a dollar shortage, necessitating the need for the U.S. to let U.S. dollars flow outward so that European countries could begin trading in U.S. currency again. This was called temporary balance of payments disequilibria. The U.S. had several options to stimulate outflows of U.S. dollars to post-war Europe. Importing from Europe, 
building plants and other infrastructure in Europe, or donating via international aid to Europe. As speculative investment was discouraged by the Bretton Woods Agreement and the U.S. tech advantage at the time meant that U.S. consumers were not very interested in European manufactured goods, the U.S. took on the balance of payments deficits through aid in the form of the Marshall Plan and the growth of U.S.-originated multinational corporations. The founding member nations of the IMF had only agreed to its structure of international economic management based on the assumption that they would only be using U.S. dollars as the world's reserve currency until international trade reallocated the world's gold supply more equally amongst these member nations. However, as international trade increased rapidly throughout the 50s, the size of the gold base held by other nations, namely France, did not grow. In result, it only grew, grew by a few percentage points and reliance on the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency became more entrenched. In 1950, the U.S. balance of payments became negative as post-war Europe rebuilt and revitalized through U.S.-backed IMF loans and Marshall Plan grants began to resume greater trade within the economic the European economic community through harmonized policies that are called the European Integration Project, which eventually led to the creation of the modern day EU. The Eisenhower administration responded to the change in the balance of payments by placing import quotas on commodities like foreign oil. A recession began in the United States in 1958 that also affected Great Britain and beginning in 1960, a decade long effort to maintain the Bretton Woods system at the $35 per troy ounce began. But another flaw in the Bretton Woods system was that the full convertibility of US dollars to gold was not required. That's such a huge gaping hole in the logic. Like how did no one see that? I guess it's because they assumed that like, oh no, Europe is just gonna be so grateful that we are, taking all of our excess gold and giving them the opportunity to use it so that they can rebuild their war-torn countries and they would never betray us. <laughs> Somebody doesn't know France. So because it wasn't required, countries like France weren't just, they just fucking do it. They just didn't fucking do it. So nations could decide to not fully convert and instead hold reserves of U.S. dollars, which is what France and to a slightly lesser extent Great Britain were doing. Rather than full convertibility, the system provided a fixed price for sales between central banks alongside an open gold market. For the Bretton Woods system to remain workable, it would have had to either alter the peg of the dollar to gold or would have had to maintain the free market price for gold near the $35 per troy ounce official price, which was a greater control over international markets than most Bretton Woods IMF members would allow the U.S. to have. Who was the loudest in vocal opposition to that second option? France. Why? Because France took advantage of the the $35 per troy ounce price to buy gold in U.S. dollars, and then they would sell the gold at inflated prices on the open gold market. When gold was cheaper to buy on the open gold market, less than the $35 per troy ounce, they bought it from there and then would convert it 
at the Bretton Woods price whenever it made most fiscal sense for them to do so. They are playing both sides because they're the French. And like I said on Twitter, they will not take an L for you. They will choose the dirty over you. They are not scared to lose you. As the gap between market prices for gold and central bank prices for gold increase, there was considerable temptation for a country's central bank to buy gold at the Bretton Woods fixed price and then sell it on the open market. And that's what France was doing. Robert Tiffin, a Belgian-American economist, observed that nations chose to hold U.S. dollars rather than fully convert the gold because the U.S. balance of payments deficits propped up the system and fueled their economic growth. Tiffin surmised that if the U.S. were unable to keep running deficits, and he was saying this in like 1958, the entire system would grind to a halt, which it did, but that the U.S. could not continue to shoulder the burden alone because over time, the continual deficits would erode confidence in the dollar and create economic instability in the world market because the U.S. dollar was the reserve currency. One such effort at maintaining the Bretton Woods system of fixed rate convertible exchanges was in um, defending the gold price of $35 per troy ounce was the London Gold Pool, which was a consortium of eight U.S. central banks and seven European countries who tried to intervene in the open London gold market by pooling their gold reserves. These central banks coordinated their gold sales to balance any spikes in the market price of gold after they were determined by the London gold fix while buying gold on price weaknesses. The U.S. contributed 50% of the required gold supply for sale. Why is the U.S. contributing 50% while six other, seven other countries are doing the other 50%? Like, when that shit that hit me, everybody's got to pull their fucking weight around here. So these price controls were successful for about six years, but by 65, 1965, the pool was increasingly unable to balance the outflow of gold reserves with buybacks as the open gold market price continued to rise while excessive inflation of the U.S. dollar led to the U.S. no longer being able to redeem foreign held dollars for gold since the world's share of gold reserves had not grown on par with the world's share of U.S. dollars in circulation because motherfuckers was cheating. There were successive failures in the London gold pool and in June 1967, France, <laughs> always France, announced their abrupt withdrawal from the pool, then took all of their gold reserves from New York and moved them to Paris, which caused panic on Wall Street. The 1967 attack on the pound and the subsequent run on gold forced the British government to devalue the pound by 14% on 18 November 8, 1967. The U.S. attempted to protect the valuation of the U.S. dollar through protective measures, but by about 14 March 1968, the U.S. made a request to the British government to close the London gold markets the following day so the U.S. could combat the heavy demand for gold. These events led the U.S. Congress to repeal the requirement for a gold reserve to back the U.S. uh, currency on 18 March 1968. As the London gold market remained closed, other countries quickly established their own gold markets to keep up with global demand because they were planning for that moment. And cities like Zurich became new major trading locations for gold. 
On 15 August 1971, in response to assets for $22 billion, leaving the U.S. to pay for military expenditures in Vietnam, he could have always just ended Vietnam, but okay, President Richard Nixon issued Executive Order 11615, pursuant to the Economic Stabilization Act of 1970, which unilaterally imposed 90-day wage and price controls a 10% import charge and close the gold window, making the U.S. dollar inconvertible to gold directly, except on the open market. As Nixon did this without consulting the IMF, World Bank, or even his own State Department, this decision was dubbed the Nixon shock, and it had devastating effects on several European economies, including France, who had, like I said, been buying cheap gold via the Bretton Woods system and then selling it on the open market at the inflated price as early as 1950. It took him no time at all to turn coat. The Federal Reserve, concerned with the increase in the domestic unemployment rate due to the devaluation of the dollar, undermined the efforts of the group of 10 Bretton Woods member nations to redesign the exchange rate regime and ease pressure on the U.S. dollar by appreciating their currencies versus the U.S. dollar. After the actions by the Fed, U.S. dollars continued their influ- inflationary outflow into foreign banks, and the U.S. dollar price on the gold market continued to outstrip its official Bretton Woods rate. In February 1973, the U.S. dollar was devalued by 10%. That's a lot. And Japan and the EU, or rather the EEC at that time, European Economic Community, made the decision to let their currencies float or fluctuate in response to foreign exchange market events. Soon after this, the end of the Bretton Woods system was formalized by the Jamaica Accords in 1976, and all the world's currencies began to float. Chapter 4, The Petrodollar Also in 1973, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, announced an oil embargo targeted at nations that had supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War which initially included the U.S., U.K., Canada, Japan, and the Netherlands, but was later extended to Portugal, the British Protectorate of Rhodesia, which is current day Zimbabwe, and South Africa. The effect was instantaneous, with non-OPEC oil-producing countries such as Norway, Trinidad and Tobago, and Indonesia seizing the opportunity to attain great profits by selling oil to embargoed nations at 300% over the pre-embargo price, from about $3 a barrel to nearly 12 globally. I would fall down on my knees and cry <laughs> if, if oil was $12 a barrel these days. Jesus Christ. $300 a barrel is what we're looking at these days. Isn't that high? I hope not. It doesn't matter. The global oil price fell and ExxonMobil said, you're still going to pay $4 a gallon, bitch. I don't care. The USD was still the world's reserve currency, but instead of using the gold standard, the US used military interventionism and economic sanctions to force countries to buy and sell oil and natural gas in US dollars, which led to the popularization of the term petrodollar. This has artificially maintained both the value of the US dollar and the currencies that float against it and the US hegemony for decades as well. Petrocurrency, or petrodollars, as they're more commonly referred to, are popular shorthand from revenues from petroleum exports, mainly from OPEC members plus Russia and Norway. During periods of especially high prices for oil, 
the associated financial flows can reach a scale of hundreds of billions of dollars uh, or hundreds of billions of U.S. equivalent dollars per year, including a wide range of transactions in a variety of currencies, some pegged to the U.S. dollar and some not. This is primarily how sanctions are effective in coercing countries to cooperate with U.S. interests. The global North, North currencies, mainly the euro and the pound sterling, float against one another but remain closely tied to the health of the U.S. dollar and U.S. hegemony since these countries, minus France, can no longer depend on coercing post-colonial nations to keep their reserves in the euro pound sterling and in their central banks. And nations that have done this, kept their money in European central banks like Venezuela and the Gambia, run the risk of having all of their assets frozen if an American or European central bank wants to pressure them to behave in a certain way or see the leader that they don't like. But the U.S. petrodollar isn't invincible, and the demise of the dominance of the dollar has been a long time coming. Since 2003, Iran has required payment in euros for oil exports to Asia and Europe. This hasn't been done to, like, this when, when countries... When countries that have been sanctioned by the United States start to require, I would require is a misnomer. They basically are trying to seek a way around the sanctions. And so requiring payment in a currency that is very closely tied to the U.S. dollar and can be converted into the U.S. dollar is a way of getting around the sanctions. It's almost the same thing. You know, because the U.S. isn't going to be like, no, you can't buy stuff in euros. So it's a way around sanctions. Right. And so they required since 2003 euros for their oil exports to Asia and to Europe. And the Iranian government opened up an Iranian oil burst on the free trade zone on the island of Kish for the express purpose of trading oil price in other currencies, including euros. The government of Venezuela also launched a Petronomada, wait, hold on, Petronomada, I guess, as a cryptocurrency in 2018, backed by the country's oil and mineral reserves, and it's intended to be a means of circumventing U.S. sanctions and providing the Venezuelan government with international financing. In March 2018, China opened a futures market denominated in yuan, which was designed to encourage the use of yuan and renminbi, I think I said that right, um, as a petrol currency and as a currency of trade for other commodities like wheat. Now, the shale boom in the U.S. that started in the early 2000s through 2010s has greatly limited OPEC's ability to control oil prices by manipulating production. But the closing of the Keystone XL pipeline um, essentially turned the U.S. from the world's largest oil exporter to the world's largest oil importer by about 2020. Chapter 5, The Great Reset. So how does all this information relate to oil prices and food prices that you're seeing now? Well, the simplest answer I can give is that Joseph Robinette Biden and his administration are the dumbest motherfuckers that I have seen in a long time. Russia. It's not some chump change global South nation. Russia is a nuclear power. It is low in debt. It has 
a large conventional military, and it provides about 45% of the oil and natural gas to the EU. Not just to one or two countries, the entirety of the EU for about the last 30 years. And there are very few nations with both the oil supply and the infrastructure to just replace that level of production at a moment's notice. The U.S. oil and gas production capabilities uh, capacities were scaled back at the request of Wall Street hedge fund managers who saw bail prices dropping too low and began sweating in their summer homes. So the U.S. itself is not in a position to just restart oil production at a level that would make Russian oil, a memory for the EU. Also, Russia's right there, right? Not just right there for the EU, but also right there for Asia. Japan needs to import 99% of its oil. That was like a bulk of the reason for Japan's Meiji expansionist period all all into East Asia and Southeast Asia. They needed oil for their growing military and their growing um, industrializing country. 99% of the oil and gas that Japan has needs to be imported. And Russia is right freaking there, whereas the U.S. is way, 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 way over there. So not only does Russia have the infrastructure already set up, the pipeline's already set up. And unlike the United States, when Russia goes into a deal with someone, they say, we're going to kick, we're going to contribute our fair share. You need a pipeline? 50% of it will be owned by Gazprom, which is the state-owned oil company in Russia. 50% of ownership means we're chipping in 50% to get this thing done, which lowers the cost, the startup cost for countries of various sizes A country like Moldova doesn't have the kind of money or the kind of infrastructure to just like, oh, we're going to finance the building of our own freaking pipeline. No, they're still a developing nation and they need help and the infrastructure and sometimes even the workforce to get those things done. And Russia has all of it and it is right there willing to do it. The United States is stingy. They'll point a gun at the back of your head and say, you need to do this. This is about freedom. But then when Europe is like, okay, so then where's it going to come from? And how's it going to get here? The U.S. is like, "Mm, I don't know, but you better figure that out quickly because you need to end your dependence on Russian oil. So while in Brussels, Biden was able to cajole the EU into saying, okay, okay, we'll buy from whoever you can guarantee and not from Russia. But as of today, as I'm speaking to you right now, France is already walking back their commitment to decouple from Russian oil. And Biden has himself acknowledged that sanctions on Russia will probably hurt America and its allies just as much, if not more, than it's currently hurting Russia. Because if you notice... Russia is not, nobody Nobody from Russia is on TV talking about, hey, man, you're just going to have to pay more at the pump, man. You're just going to have to pay more for bread and and, and cheese and, and, and all that good stuff, man. You're just going to have to deal with it. It's about freedom. No, they're not. As a matter of fact, Russia's getting even more brisk trade with 
India and China. Like as we speak, they're just like, "Mm -hmm, y'all have fun with that. So this is because the U.S. had already started the process of decoupling Russia from the global financial system via the sanctions they imposed in 2014. And during that time, Russia learned a couple of things from those sanctions that were imposed in 2014, which is actually, we're not going to let this beat us or defeat us or kill us. We're going to figure this out. And so they not only developed a payment system for electronic uh, fund transfers that they call the mirror system. And Russia is now using this separate payment system to link with other sanctioned nations, such as Venezuela. And then they're also linking it now to China. Having a separate payment system not only gives Russia more autonomy in their uh, international trade, it gives the U.S. and its allies, allies less visibility into Russian international trade, particularly where military spending is concerned. If Russia, who is scheduled to be a major customer for Chinese uh, what do you call those semiconductors that they need to power their planes in order to wage war on Ukraine or whoever else. If the United States and the EU cannot see these transactions because they're not occurring in SWIFT, then they have no idea of knowing how much the volume of the trade, what's being traded. They think they, they, they have no visibility into it. I mean, you have spies, but U.S. spies suck. Let's just be clear. Like there are just huge gaping, leaking holes in the U.S. surveillance system and have been for about 10, 12 years now. And so it's actually kind of frightening from a Western perspective to think that there's going to be this huge volume of trade going on between three or four nuclear armed states, all of whom have a very complicated history with the United States in particular And we have very limited to no visibility as to what the hell is going on over there. So speaking of military spending, the U.S. does a lot of it. And due to the sanctions, Russia has done very little, meaning that while Russia may not have the cutting edge equipment needed for conventional warfare against a country like the United States, they also don't need it because they are nuclear power. And that is deterrent enough. This also means that the Russian ruble is actually more insulated from inflationary shock than the U.S. dollar currently is because Russia can't just print rubles indiscriminately whenever they want to justify their military spending without having something to back those rubles on. And speaking of backing rubles, Putin recently announced that unfriendly nations, those being nations that have backed U.S. sanctions on Russia, can still purchase Russian oil and gas, but they have to do it in rubles or gold which gives even more backing to the Russian ruble. Another wild card, well, wild if you're the arrogant U.S. State Department, is the People's Republic of China, who have also developed their own payment system that they call Union Pay, which recently became linked to Russia's Mir and possibly soon to India's Rupee Pay system. This new trading block represents about 45% of the world's population. And along with Pakistan, which is also linked to Russia's Mir and China's Union Pay, they're all nuclear armed states, meaning they don't really have to fear American invasion unless they make a move that the U.S. is in approval. In the Pacific, the most staunch U.S. allies are Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Japan don't even have a military, all of whom 
have to import oil and gas. And in the Pacific, only Russia, Indonesia, China, Malaysia, and theoretically Papua New Guinea are oil exporters. And they're all much closer aligned to the China, India, Russian bloc than the US, Japan, Australia bloc. What this means for for the future, it still kind of remains to be seen. So Venezuela has now taken steps to be linked to the mere payment system, which takes a key oil producer in the Western Hemisphere, which if you follow Monroe Doctrine is U.S. territory. And it aligns it very closely to the Eastern Bloc, which already kind of includes Brazil since Brazil is part of the BRICS trading bloc. And BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. One, two, three nuclear powers in BRICS, right in our backyard. And Bolivia, which is the world's largest supplier of lithium and a key Venezuela supporter in South America, has signaled that they would also like to join the mere payment system. For the West, there seems to be a sense of urgency on behalf of the U.S. to do three things. One, find non-Russian oil and gas distributors, since Russia is a member of OPEC Plus and Saudi Arabia and Qatar have already stated that they're either siding with Russia in the case of Saudi Arabia, or that they simply cannot meet the EU's demand for oil to the level that Russia has been giving, which is what Qatar's case is. Two, they need to pressure nations like China and India to agree to U.S. sanctions on Russia, which neither country is keen to do. And they're actually planning to do even more business with Russia. And three, they need to be able to spend this war in Ukraine in NATO's favor without actually letting Ukraine join NATO, since that would be tantamount to declaring nuclear war. To address the first effort, Biden has lifted some of the sanctions on Venezuela, giving the U.S. multinational Chevron the green light to start importing Venezuelan state-owned oil again so that it can be refined. This is funny for a lot of reasons, but the funniest reason is that when Biden won the presidency in November, one of the first things he did was reaffirm that his position, which was the official U.S. position, was that Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro was not the legitimate leader of Venezuela and Juan Guaido, who I would like to reiterate, did not even run in the 2018 Venezuelan elections, was the legitimate president. Fast forward to March 2022, and not only is Maduro suddenly the legitimate president of Venezuela, but now Venezuela is an emerging democracy, despite doing and saying nothing differently this entire time. Those are truly the best wins, the ones where you just sit and wait out your opponent. Biden is also softening his rhetoric on Iran and considering lifting their sanctions so that they can start trading oil more directly and in U.S. dollars with the EU. Iran is, for its part, continuing the same pace of trade with Russia that it always has maintained, and like Venezuela, saying and doing absolutely nothing differently. For the second effort, like I said, India and China simply refuse to let the U.K. and the U.S. bully them into taking a side and sanctioning Russia when it is simply more advantageous for them to, again, do nothing and not take any sides. The U.S. and the U.K. need to be able to trade with both countries since a not insubstantial number of American and British multinationals operate and manufacture in China. And India and China do still need the U.S. and U.K. as a dumping ground for their consumer goods. Oh, how the tables have turned in the last hundred or so years. 
So there you have it, a concise but not too lengthy and while accurate, not entirely academic summation of what is being called the Great Reset in the realm of macroeconomics and the new Cold War in the study of international relations. In the First World War, China was not the global power that it is now, nor was India, and so the Global South was a more fertile ground for American neoliberal experimentation and military adventurism. This time, though, the U.S. seems to be saddled with Europe, a continent that has outsourced their military expenditures to the U.S. for decades and are now struggling to meet the new demand to spend on military expenditures, as well as the fact that they're scrambling to abruptly end their oil and gas relationship with Russia in order to suit U.S. desires. Russia, on the other hand, has the benefit of not having a tense and often hostile history in the global South. Because see, yeah, it's been great trading with Europe probably hasn't been great. It's probably been very frustrating for both sides. But Russia can always just go east, south, wherever to trade its oil. Europe, from the way it's looking, doesn't have a whole lot of viable resources that they can use to supplement or replace Russian oil. But Russia has the benefit of not having this tense and hostile history in the global South, making their trade block that much more appealing. And they have a growing and strong economy and they have the nuclear armed militaries of China and India on their side, which they don't have to subsidize, unlike the U.S. has to do with the NATO-aligned countries. In the aftermath of the Great Reset, the U.S. will have to figure out a less bellicose way, I think, of communicating and operating in the global south and with formerly colonized nations in general, which China and India both are. Like, you can't spend the last two years waging an information war against China so that you can cripple their economy, claiming that they have this nebulous... Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not genocide going on. And then when you want to wage economic war on Russia, reach out to China and be like, hey, will you join me? As a Chinese person, why the hell would I? Oh, for for, for liberty. And, and you said we were autocratic. So I think I'm just going to stay autocratic. That's what I would do. And that seems to be what China's going to do. No, you said I was a monster. So I'm just going to stay over here being a monster. You have fun with that. Now, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which some have called Chinese imperialism in Africa, has actually had enormous success in strengthening the position of Chinese multinationals. Uh and in building infrastructure in Africa and in the Caribbean and in Southeast Asia, which is something that the West generally never does. If Russia were to develop its own soft power initiative in the global South or join in on China's Belt and Road, the liberalizing concessions of the IMF, which have kept the global South in crippling debt cycles for decades, will seem less and less attracted to developing nations, which will in turn lead to a decrease in loans sought from the IMF and maybe even shares purchased in the IMF. And then that will not only lead to a decrease in the hegemony of the U.S. dollar in circulation around the world, but also make it that much harder for the U.S. and allies to exert exercise control over global South nations. The fun part about multipolarity is that it gives economically weaker nations more options to strengthen their domestic economies. The not so fun part of 
multipolarity is all the proxy wars that empires in their self-destructive phase tend to fight as they go charging into that good night, just like the Light Brigade. Join me next time for more Musings on History.